Section 46 of Volume 1D of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Asterix history of england from the invasion of julius caesar to the revolution of sixteen eighty eight by david hume volume one d section forty six chapter forty five part one james i the crown of england was never transmitted from father to son with greater tranquillity than it passed from the family of tudor to that of stuart during the whole reign of elizabeth the eyes of men had been employed in search of her successor and when old age made the prospect of her death more immediate there appeared none but the king of scots who could advance any just claim or pretension to the throne he was great-grandson of margaret elder daughter of henry the seventh and on the failure of the male line his hereditary right remained unquestionable if the religion of mary queen of scots and the other prejudices contracted against her had formed any considerable obstacle to her succession these objections being entirely personal had no place with regard to her son men also considered that though the title derived from blood had been frequently violated since the norman conquest such licenses had proceeded more from force or intrigue than from any deliberate maxims of government the lineal heir had still in the end prevailed and both his exclusion and restoration had been commonly attended with such convulsions as were sufficient to warn all prudent men not likely to give way to such irregularities if the will of henry the eighth authorized by act of parliament had tacitly excluded the scottish line the tyranny and caprices of that monarch had been so signal that a settlement of this nature unsupported by any just reason had no authority with the people queen elizabeth too with her dying breath had recognized the undoubted title of her kinsman james and the whole nation seemed to dispose themselves with joy and pleasure for his reception though born and educated amidst a foreign and hostile people men hoped from his character of moderation and wisdom that he would embrace the maxims of an english monarch and the prudent foresaw greater advantages resulting from a union with scotland than disadvantages from submitting to a prince of that nation the alacrity with which the english looked towards the successor had appeared so evident to elizabeth that concurring with other causes it affected her with the deepest melancholy and that wise princess whose penetration and experience had given her the greatest insight into human affairs had not yet sufficiently weighed the ingratitude of courtiers and levity of the people as victory abroad and tranquillity at home had attended this princess she left the nation in such flourishing circumstances that her successor possessed every advantage except that of comparison with her illustrious name when he mounted the throne of england 
the king's journey from edinburgh to london immediately afforded to the inquisitive some circumstances of comparison which even the natural partiality in favour of their new sovereign could not interpret to his advantage as he passed along all ranks of men flocked about him from every quarter allured by interest or curiosity great were the rejoicings and loud and hearty the acclamations which resounded from all sides and every one could remember how the affability and popular manners of their queen displayed themselves amidst such concourse and exultation of her subjects but james though sociable and familiar with his friends and courtiers hated the bustle of a mixed multitude and though far from disliking flattery yet was he still fonder of tranquillity and ease he issued therefore a proclamation forbidding this resort of people on pretence of the scarcity of provisions and other inconveniences which he said would necessarily attend it he was not however insensible to the great flow of affection which appeared in his new subjects and being himself of an affectionate temper he seemed to have been in haste to make them some return of kindness and good offices to this motive probably we are to ascribe that profusion of titles which was observed in the beginning of his reign when in six weeks time after his entrance into the kingdom he is computed to have bestowed knighthood on no less than two hundred and thirty-seven persons if elizabeth's frugality of honours as well as of money had formerly been repined at it began now to be valued and esteemed and every one was sensible that the king by his lavish and premature conferring of favours had failed of obliging the persons on whom he bestowed them titles of all kinds became so common that they were scarcely marks of distinction and being distributed without choice or deliberation to persons unknown to the prince were regarded more as the proofs of facility and good nature than of any determined friendship or esteem a pasquinade was affixed to st paul's in which an art was promised to be taught very necessary to assist frail memories in retaining the names of the new nobility we may presume that the english would have thrown less blame on the king's facility in bestowing favours had these been confined entirely to their own nation and had not been shared out in too unequal proportions to his old subjects james who through his whole reign was more guided by temper and inclination than by the rules of political prudence had brought with him great numbers of his scottish courtiers whose impatience and importunity were apt in many particulars to impose on the easy nature of their master and extort favours of which it is natural to imagine his english subjects would loudly complain the duke of lennox the earl of mar lord hume lord kinloss sir george hume secretary elphinstone were immediately added to the english privy council sir george hume whom he created earl of dunbar was his declared favourite as long as that nobleman lived and was one of the wisest and most virtuous though the least powerful of all those whom the king ever honoured with that distinction 
hay some time after was created viscount doncaster then earl of carlisle and got an immense fortune from the crown all which he spent in a splendid and courtly manner ramsay obtained the title of earl of holderness and many others being raised on a sudden to the highest elevation increased by their insolence that envy which naturally attended them as strangers and ancient enemies it must however be owned in justice to james that he left almost all the chief officers in the hands of elizabeth's ministers and trusted the conduct of political concerns both foreign and domestic to his english subjects among these secretary cecil created successively lord effenden viscount cranbourne and earl of salisbury was always regarded as his prime minister and chief counsellor though the capacity and penetration of this minister were sufficiently known his favour with the king created surprise on the accession of that monarch the secret correspondence into which he had entered with james and which had sensibly contributed to the easy reception of that prince in england laid the foundation of cecil's credit and while all his former associates sir walter raleigh lord grey lord cobham were discountenanced on account of their animosity against essex as well as for other reasons this minister was continued in employment and treated with the greatest confidence and regard the capacity of james and his ministers in negotiation was immediately put to trial on the appearance of ambassadors from almost all the princes and states of europe in order to congratulate him on his accession and form with him new treaties and alliances besides ministers from venice denmark the palatinate henry frederick of nassau assisted by barnefeld the pensionary of holland was ambassador from the states of the united provinces aremberg was sent by archduke albert and taxis was expected in a little time from spain but he who most excited the attention of the public both on account of his own merit and that of his master was the marquis of rosny afterwards duke of sully prime minister and favourite of henry the fourth of france when the dominions of the house of austria devolved on philip the second all europe was struck with terror lest the power of a family which had been raised by fortune should now be carried to an immeasurable height by the wisdom and conduct of this monarch but never were apprehensions found in the event to be more groundless slow without prudence ambitious without enterprise false without deceiving anybody and refined without any true judgment such was the character of philip and such the character which during his lifetime and after his death he impressed on the spanish councils revolted or depopulated provinces discontented or indolent inhabitants were the spectacles which those dominions lying in every climate of the globe presented to philip the third a weak prince and to the duke of lerma a minister weak and odious but though military discipline which still remained was what alone gave some appearance of life and vigour to that languishing body 
yet so great was the terror produced by former power and ambition that the reduction of the house of austria was the object of men's vows throughout all the states of christendom it was not perceived that the french empire now united in domestic peace and governed by the most heroic and most amiable prince that adorns modern story was become of itself a sufficient counterpoise to the spanish greatness perhaps that prince himself did not perceive it when he proposed by his minister a league with james in conjunction with venice the united provinces and the northern crowns in order to attack the austrian dominions on every side and depress the exorbitant power of that ambitious family but the genius of the english monarch was not equal to such vast enterprises the love of peace was his ruling passion and it was his peculiar felicity that the conjectures of the times rendered the same object which was agreeable to him in the highest degree advantageous to his people the french ambassador therefore was obliged to depart from these extensive views and to concert with james the means of providing for the safety of the united provinces nor was this object altogether without its difficulties the king before his accession had entertained scruples with regard to the revolt of the low countries and being commonly open and sincere he had on many occasions gone so far as to give the dutch the appellation of rebels but having conversed more fully with english ministers and courtiers he found their attachment to that republic so strong and their opinion of common interests so established that he was obliged to sacrifice to politics his sense of justice a quality which even when erroneous is respectable as well as rare in a monarch he therefore agreed with rosny to support secretly the states-general in concert with the king of france lest their weakness and despair should oblige them to submit to their old master the articles of the treaty were few and simple it was stipulated that the two kings should allow the dutch to levy forces in their respective dominions and should underhand remit to that republic the sum of one million four hundred thousand livres a year for the pay of these forces that the whole sum should be advanced by the king of france but that the third of it should be deducted from the debt due by him to queen elizabeth and if the spaniards attacked either of the princes they agreed to assist each other henry with a force of ten thousand men james with that of six this treaty one of the wisest and most equitable concluded by james during the course of his reign was more the work of the prince himself than any of his ministers amidst the great tranquillity both foreign and domestic with which the nation was blessed nothing could be more surprising than the discovery of a conspiracy to subvert the government and to fix on the throne arabella stuart a near relation of the king's by the family of lennox and descended equally from henry the seventh everything remains still mysterious in this conspiracy and history can give us no clue to unravel it watson and clark two catholic priests were accused of the plot lord grey a puritan lord cobham a thoughtless man of no fixed principle and sir walter raleigh 
suspected to be of that philosophical sect who were then extremely rare in england and who have since received the appellation of free thinkers together with these mr broke brother to lord cobham sir griffin markham mr copley sir edward parham what cement could unite men of such discordant principles in so dangerous a combination what end they proposed or what means proportion to an undertaking of this nature has never yet been explained and cannot easily be imagined as raleigh gray and cobham were commonly believed after the queen's death to have opposed proclaiming the king till conditions should be made with him they were upon that account extremely obnoxious to the court and ministry and people were apt at first to suspect that the plot was merely a contrivance of secretary cecil to get rid of his old confederates now become his most inveterate enemies but the confession as well as trial of the criminals put the matter beyond doubt and though no one could find any marks of a concerted enterprise it appeared that men of furious and ambitious spirits meeting frequently together and believing all the world discontented like themselves had entertained very criminal projects and had even entered some of them at least into a correspondence with arlenberg the flemish ambassador in order to give disturbance to the new settlement the two priests and broke were executed cobham gray and markham were pardoned after they had laid their heads upon the block raleigh too was reprieved not pardoned and he remained in confinement many years afterwards it appears from sully's memoirs that raleigh secretly offered his services to the french ambassador and we may thence presume that meeting with a repulse from that quarter he had recourse for the same unwarrantable purposes to the flemish minister such a conjecture we are now enabled to form but it must be confessed that on his trial there appeared no proof of this transaction nor indeed any circumstance which could justify his condemnation he was accused by cobham alone in a sudden fit of passion upon hearing that raleigh when examined had pointed out some circumstances by which cobham's guilt might be known and ascertained this accusation cobham afterwards retracted and soon after he retracted his retraction yet upon the written evidence of this single witness a man of no honour or understanding and so contradictory in his testimony not confronted with raleigh not supported by any concurring circumstance was that great man contrary to all law and equity found guilty by the jury his name was at that time extremely odious in england and every man was pleased to give sentence against the capital enemy of essex the favourite of the people sir edward coke the famous lawyer then attorney-general managed the cause for the crown and threw out on raleigh such gross abuse as may be deemed a great reflection not only on his own memory but even in some degree on the manners of the age traitor monster viper and spider of hell are the terms which he employs against one of the most illustrious men of the kingdom who was under trial for life and fortune 
and who defended himself with temper eloquence and courage the next occupation of the king was entirely according to his heart's content he was employed in dictating magisterially to an assembly of divines concerning points of faith and discipline and in receiving the applauses of these holy men for his superior zeal and learning the religious disputes between the church and the puritans had induced him to call a conference at hampton court on pretence of finding expedients which might reconcile both parties though the severities of elizabeth towards the catholics had much weakened that party whose genius was opposite to the prevailing spirit of the nation like severities had had so little influence on the puritans who were encouraged by that spirit that no less than seven hundred and fifty clergymen of that party signed a petition to the king on his accession and many more seemed willing to adhere to it they all hoped that james having received his education in scotland and having sometimes professed an attachment to the church established there would at least abate the rigour of the laws enacted in support of the ceremonies and against puritans if he did not show more particular grace and encouragement to that sect but the king's disposition had taken strongly a contrary bias the more he knew the puritanical clergy the less favour he bore to them he had remarked in their scottish brethren a violent turn towards republicanism and a zealous attachment to civil liberty principles nearly allied to that religious enthusiasm with which they were actuated he had found that being mostly persons of low birth and mean education the same lofty pretensions which attended them in their familiar addresses to their maker of whom they believed themselves the peculiar favourites induced them to use the utmost freedoms with their earthly sovereign in both capacities of monarch and of theologian he had experienced the little complaisance which they were disposed to show him whilst they controlled his commands disputed his tenets and to his face before the whole people censured his conduct and behaviour if he had submitted to the indignity of courting their favour he treasured up on that account the stronger resentment against them and was determined to make them feel in their turn the weight of his authority though he had often met with resistance and faction and obstinacy in the scottish nobility he retained no ill-will to that order or rather showed them favour and kindness in england beyond what reason and sound policy could well justify but the ascendant which the presbyterian clergy had assumed over him was what his monarchical pride could never thoroughly digest he dreaded likewise the popularity which attended this order of men in both kingdoms as useless austerities and self-denial are imagined in many religions to render us acceptable to a benevolent being who created us solely for happiness james remarked that the rustic severity of these clergymen and of their whole sect had given them in the eyes of the multitude the appearance of sanctity and virtue strongly inclined himself to mirth and wine and sports of all kinds he apprehended their censure for his manner of life free and disengaged 
and being thus averse from temper as well as policy to the sect of puritans he was resolved if possible to prevent its further growth in england but it was the character of james's counsels throughout his whole reign that they were more wise and equitable in their end than prudent and political in the means though justly sensible that no part of civil administration required greater care or a nicer judgment than the conduct of religious parties he had not perceived that in the same proportion as this practical knowledge of theology is requisite the speculative refinements in it are mean and even dangerous in a monarch by entering zealously into frivolous disputes james gave them an air of importance and dignity which they could not otherwise have acquired and being himself enlisted in the quarrel he could no longer have recourse to contempt and ridicule the only proper method of appeasing it the church of england had not yet abandoned the rigid doctrines of grace and predestination the puritans had not yet separated themselves from the church nor openly renounced episcopacy though the spirit of the parties was considerably different the only appearing subjects of dispute were concerning the cross in baptism the ring in marriage the use of the surplice and the bowing at the name of jesus these were the mighty questions which were solemnly agitated in the conference at hampton court between some bishops and dignified clergymen on the one hand and some leaders of the puritanical party on the other the king and his ministers being present end of section forty six chapter forty five part one recording by asterix